Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us once again. This week is going to be a bit of a different one because I think it's our first ever three-parter. So we're going to release the episodes uh, one each day. So you're going to get us for three days this week. How excited are you? The intention is that we release uh, part one on Wednesday, part two on Thursday and part three on Friday. So in theory, that should work. Um, You can save it all up and binge all three episodes on Friday if you want to. Otherwise, you can listen each day. If you're like me and you're planning to put your Christmas tree up next week, next weekend, that's my plan. You could have all three to listen to because that would get you in the festive spirit, wouldn't it, Mark? I don't think it would, no. No, I don't think it would either. I've put mine up. Mine's up. All the decorations are up. Yeah, it's looking looking fit. I bet it is. Yeah. Um, Oh, lovely. So before we come on to part one, uh, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. Uh, So we have Kelly Green, Mara Gonzalez, Rachel, and also uh, Janine Mallon-Brown. Thank you, Janine, because Janine signed up annually, uh, which anybody can do. You get a slight discount, but we're always particularly grateful uh, when somebody is able to do that and does that because it's a huge investment in us. And it really does mean that we can continue uh, to produce a show, produce episodes pretty much on a week, weekly basis. Um, so if you would like to join these guys and lots of other people, then you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. And also there was a new Patreon supporter who doesn't want to have a shout out, but we just wanted to make sure that they know that we are very, very grateful. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your support. So this week's case was requested by a listener, which isn't in itself particularly unusual. We're given suggestions on a weekly basis. And whilst we can't really cover everything we get sent, we do love being able to cover cases that people have asked us to cover that they want to hear about. And when this person got in touch with today's case, I was always going to cover it for them because it is a real Bethan kind of case. It is a fatal fire in a nightclub. Oh, wow. And then... Yeah. And then he told me that he had some connections to the case. I got absolute chills. So I knew there and then I just had to cover it. Um, So they've actually asked that they aren't named anymore in this um, because of the personal connection. So we're not going to name you, but this is your case. And this episode, well, these three episodes are for you. So thank you for listening and for getting in touch with us. The case is incredibly in-depth. And I really got lost writing about it. So I did try and condense my script, but I didn't want to get rid of anything. So that's why it's ended up being a three-parter, Mark. It's a bit crazy. I can see it's massive, isn't it? Oh. And the script. (laughs) (laughs) Christ, it's too early for this. It's way too early. It's not even (laughs) nine o'clock yet on a Sunday of all days. And I'm talking about having a big one. Yeah, I'm having a massive cock. Sorry, listeners. Very sorry. Mark. Bethan does not have a massive cock. I can, I can we attest to that. We don't even need to say it out loud. It could have just been in your uh, Yeah, I'm not very good at that, am I? I always take it too Christ. far. Yeah, sorry. So in today's first part, we're going to discuss what happened on that fateful night leading up to the fire. In part two, we're going to look at the fire itself and how the night ended. And then in part three, we're going to take you through some of the contributing factors. Um, so kind of what caused it and what happened in the aftermath as well. So first of all, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the club where today's case takes place. The Stardust nightclub was a section of a large building which had been converted into an area that also included a bar called the Silver Swan, a restaurant and a function room called the Lantern Rooms, as well as the nightclub. So it was a really big building. The building was built in 1948 and it was initially a food factory 
operated by Scots Food Limited and it was situated in the North Dublin suburb of Artan and that was then part of County Dublin. In 1978, the owners of Scott's Food Factory, the Butterley family, converted a bit of these premises into the amenity centre with the three distinct areas, and then they continued to use the remainder of the premises as a food factory. The Stardust was originally intended for use for cabarets and concerts, and the club part of the premises included a stage, a dancing area, and a seating area, and they were referred to collectively as the ballroom together with toilets and a cloakroom, two bars and two seating alcoves, the North Alcove and the West Alcove. There were also tables and chairs on the dance floor area. The centre opened to the public on the 6th of March 1978 and in February 1980, the activities in the Stardust were going to be extended to the holding of disco dances on Friday and Saturday nights. So there were a lot of staff who worked at the Stardust and on the night in question there were loads of people including nine doormen, 13 barmen, five washers which were assistants to the barmen, nine kitchen staff, six waitresses, 14 lounge girls and eight doormen on Jesus duty. Christ, that is so many staff, isn't it? I think that kind of gives you an idea of how big this venue was. Yeah, if, I mean the if amount that of, makes sense. The amount of doormen and the la- I love how it's also sexist as well. Doormen, lounge girls. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's a lot of staff. Like waitresses. And you know it would only have been younger girls being the waitresses. And the lounge girls would only have been young women as well. Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the 80s. The maximum number of people to be admitted to the main cabaret room at any one time was limited to 1,458. And although there had been one occasion prior to the fire when this condition had not been complied with, the number of people admitted to the Stardust on the night that we're going to be discussing over the next three episodes was 846, so it was well below the permitted maximum. So, it is Friday the 13th of February, 1980, and the club was putting on a Valentine's Day event. A bar extension until 1am had been obtained by the management, and the main excitement for the night was going to be a disco dancing competition. The special exemption order, which allowed Eamon Butterley, the general manager and one of the owners, to stay serving alcohol till this later time, referred to a dinner dance. So this meant that at the end of the night, patrons were going to receive a dinner of sausage and chips. That's amazing. Loved. I know. That's absolutely what you need at the end of a night, isn't it? I know, it's incredible. And this wasn't an unusual setup. This is quite a normal thing that they would do. You'd get your ticket and it would include dinner at the end. I need this to happen more in my life. Yeah, we need places like that. When when places can reopen, they need to start doing that. I did have a Christmas party somewhere once and at like 2am when it was all finishing, they did bacon rolls. But I'd, yeah, it was good, but I'd rather have a sausage and mashed dinner. So the doors to the club had opened at approximately 9.40 on the Friday night and people were coming in steadily from about 10pm. By 11pm, there was a queue of people's outside, um, stretching kind of along the front of the building. And I can just imagine the crowds of people. They're full of excitement. They're dressed to impress. It's the 80s. They've got big hair, all those bright colours. Oh, yeah. Dangly earrings for the girls. Yeah. And the guys would have been in suits with ties and like ill-fitting Absolutely. baggy suits. Yeah. And the women would have shoulder pads. Absolutely. Do you remember that, though? That kind of queuing and waiting outside to go into a club? Mm-hmm. 
like you say freezing that, cold because you don't yeah. really want to wear a coat you'd then... never wear a coat because you'd have to put it away in the cloakroom you'd have to pay, have to pay. <laughs> um but yeah that anticipation of going in and i definitely miss those days they were good fun the patrons had paid three pound each for their admission and that included their their dinner at the end And the resident DJ for the night was Danny Hughes. He was keeping the dance floor filled along with his five DJ assistants. So like I said before, there were 846 patrons there that night. So whilst it was nowhere near capacity, the club would have felt pretty full. The night must have been really good fun. The average age of the patrons was 18 to 25, although naughty, naughty, there were some sneaky underages. Tat, tat. And of course, the club did have a policy not to allow people under 18 in, but we all know that some would slip the net and especially with the girls a bit of makeup and high heels a doorman's going to be fooled isn't he yeah i think i mean that's quite common isn't it people from like 15 would go clubbing so um yeah there would have been probably i would have thought a, a relatively decent proportion of patrons would have been under 18 yeah i think as well like nowadays you have to take your id with you but back then you wouldn't have had something that you could have scrutinised as much as nowadays with your driving licence or something, so. There was a bit of an incident at about midnight where four kids climbed the drain pipes up onto the roof in an attempt to sneak into the club. The noise that they made doing this was heard by members of the bar staff in the Silver Swan who rushed out, so the four made their escape, and they must now feel really lucky that they weren't successful in sneaking in, because they had wanted to kind of sneak in and, and not pay the admission and get into the club it's like those people that nearly got on the titanic but for whatever reason didn't um we have it a lot don't we in in a lot of these big cases that we cover so when we covered seven seven um when we've covered things like hillsborough there were lots of people that should have been in those locations but for whatever twist of fate they weren't and they managed to get away with their lives whereas they wouldn't have if they'd have been there it's just it's just one of those really weird ways the world works isn't it it really is isn't it it's really strange um as for the people inside legitimately this incident really wasn't noticed by anyone they were all much more interested in the anticipation of the disco dancing competition never get that in a club now would you a disco dancing competition at the end i know i know i absolutely loved it it's it's tragic though but it would now it would be hilarious and loads of fun but yeah it's just it would never go down well in a club it would for like us because we'd be there to enjoy ourselves and have a good time but if you're there to try and be cool and go pull you're not going to want to do a disco dancing competition nowadays no way so the bar closed at 1am which as well is quite unusual to nowadays standards and so finally, this competition began at one fifteen a.m. They had 36 entrances. Oh, my God, really? I know, in the competition. Uh, I, I just thought, do you know what? That is a lot of people who really enjoyed this. And I just thought, this is wonderful. I really enjoyed this See, I find whole it, I find idea. it cringe, but I, obviously I know what's coming. And it, it's, you know, it's really sad. Obviously, it's beyond sad. It's tragic. But um, this whole disco dancing competition is just weird. It's It gets a little bit worse when you hear that the song that they were dancing to, that they they all had to dance to, was Patrick Hernandez, Born to be Alive. I just didn't, as soon as I read that that was what they were dancing to, it just made my heart go like weird. I don't like it. So the competition lasted about 10 minutes. 
Um, So while the disco competition was in progress, a large number of patrons and the staff clustered around the edges of the dance floor to watch it. Some people were standing on the tables or the seats in order to get a better view. Some of the girls were stood on the ledge provided by the edge of the tables. The winners had been picked by two of the assistant DJs who were the judges. So as soon as the song ended, the DJ, Danny Hughes, announced their names. The winners came up on stage, they shook hands with Mr Hughes, who brought them down to the dressing rooms behind the stage to present them with their prizes. And so whilst this was going on backstage, an assistant DJ called Mr O'Brien took over as disc jockey, and then they returned to the stage with their prizes, and the winners gave a demonstration dance on stage to that same song, Born to be Alive. The rest of the patrons were called up to dance on the floor at the same time, and a number of people rushed up to join in. This competition was so popular that it had kept most of the people in the club, even though the bar had shut. In fact, only 35 people had left prior to this, so the club was still pretty much as busy as it had been all night. So whilst you might think it was a bit cringe, Mark, everybody was loving this disco dancing competition. Low standards in the 80s, what can I say? Christ, we're going to get complaints this week, Mark. Well, they must have if this was classed as entertainment. I would go to this these days. I think yeah, we would. Great. We're in our thirties now, Beth, and we would. But if oh. you were in your early twenties, out on the pool, you would not. Yeah, you, you would yeah, not be no, up for this shit. Completely agree. Completely agree. It began to feel like it was the end of the night, and some people had started to peel off to the toilets and the cloakrooms with a view to heading home. But the majority kind of headed back to their tables to continue conversations. Some people joined the dance floor, and the DJs did continue playing music for the dancing crowd. Linda was out with her friends, and she was sat in the main bar when at 1.33am, because she'd looked at her digital watch, she began to feel really warm. She thought it was odd that the heating had been turned on. And then she and a friend went to go and dance. And about five minutes later, a friend saw that there was a fire in an alcove and shouted to alert her. Friends Francis, Valerie, Sharon, Pamela and Gerard were sat with Linda and Chandra and about 1.35 began to smell smoke. They looked under the blind area that separated the bar from the alcove and they saw a small fire was alight in the seating area. Anthony was also sat with a group of friends and when he saw smoke coming from the blinds, he went to go tell a nearby doorman. And one of the waitresses called Elizabeth had been serving meals since about 1.10. She thought she'd finished, but then a person asked whether he could have his meal, although he was late. He gave her his ticket and she went to go check with her mum, who was the catering manager. She said he could, but checked her watch because 1.25 was quite an unusually late time for dinner. And then Elizabeth took the meal out, collected a load of plates to return to the kitchen. But on this next trip back, she smelt smoke. And so she grabbed her mum. They rushed out and they saw the fire. Maria Brady, the supervisor of the lounge girls, which I hated writing, but that's how they're described. She was collecting empty bottles and glasses from the tables in the North Alcove. When she saw a glow behind the blinds, she rushed back to the main bar with a view to getting somebody with a fire extinguisher. And John Andrews was working in the main bar when he saw Elizabeth looking under the blind. Someone shouted to him to get a fire extinguisher and he ran up the steps to go and raise the alarm. Patrons had gathered in a large group at the blinds wanting to see the fire or wanting to know what all the excitement was about. And I guess at this point they all expected it would kind of be sorted out by a staff member. It's probably pretty exciting at the end of a good night out. You know, you just expect to see someone turn up with a fire extinguisher. Out it goes. Done. Yeah, and I think it's not it's not really a serious fire that's taken hold at this point. So it it is probably just a bit of excitement. There's no impending doom at this point. It's just a, a minor inconvenience or a bit of a an event towards the end of the night, yeah. 
Exactly. The music continued to play, and the dance floor was still crowded with dancers. The situation didn't seem serious enough to warrant a panic or even to encourage people to evacuate. Jacqueline was in a group of people near the blinds and she headed to a doorman to tell him, the place is on fire. And the doorman, as soon as she told him, ran to the inner door and shouted to Leo Doyle, who was the deputy head doorman, who was in the foyer, to ring for the fire brigade. And then he turned and ran back to the blind, crawled under the section nearest the kitchen and he saw the flames. There was a couple on the phone in the foyer, so Anne and her boyfriend Peter. He was reporting the loss of Anne's handbag to the Garda, and this phone call at 1.42 was automatically recorded as per standard 999 procedures. On the call, Peter says, Hello, I'm at the Stardust Disco, and my girlfriend's handbag was robbed. The call continues until the end, where the call handler is asking, What's your name? Hello, what's your name? And there are screams heard in the background. The phone call was ended and it's since been revealed that this screaming noise was the first alarm of a major fire being given by the people in the foyer when people began to panic. Leo Doyle was on the phone, so he had dialed 999. He then handed the phone to Frank Downs, saying, Frank, ring the fire brigade, there's a slight fire under the screen at the left. So then he grabbed a fire extinguisher from the wall and went into the ballroom. Frank saw a very hazy grey smoke coming through the inner door of the exit, so he then shoved the phone back on the receiver and went to the front door where he attempted to secure the doors to an exit known as Exit 2 open. So already, like, two of them should have really been phoning 999, but have kind of gone, actually, right now I need to just do something immediate. I understand that, though. They've alerted the emergency services. Well, they haven't managed to yet. Oh, haven't they managed to? Right, Okay. Ma- so they, maybe they just they're about to. Maybe they just didn't have chance though, because it's they're literally about to, and then they've realised that the fire is really starting to take hold, and they need to do yeah. something straight away. And those front doors needed to be opened so yeah. people could get out. The fire had started on a first floor storeroom inside the building that was open to the roof space, and after the fire on the roof from the storeroom came through the roof tiles, sparks fell onto the backrest and top of a seating bench which was covered in PVC-coated polyester fabric. The fire outbreak is believed to have derived from an electrical fault in the room beside the roof space. This space didn't actually comply with panning permission, and it contained dangerously flammable materials, including 45 five-gallon drums of cooking oil. There's also a number of other factors that played a part in the fire and the ensuing tragedy, which I will go into in a bit more detail later. But for now, we'll go back to the foyer. So as an ex-doorman, Noel, he'd kind of been working at at the Stardust before. He was just there on a night out. He decided to go home about half one, but when he got to exit two, he found the doors were locked. And it was around this same sort of time that Frank Downs had taken the phone and put it back, and then rushed to try and get the exit open. One of the staff members called Maria Brady shouted to the barman, Lawrence Neville, Larry, come out, there's a fire, before she rushed into the lantern room. And then Lawrence ran out through the main bar and stood immediately in front of the blind. He could see the fire, so he ran through to the Silver Swan, where he saw a number of other staff members that he knew. He shouted, there's a fire in the Stardust, and then ran back through to the bar. And Lawrence said the fire at this stage was jumping from row to row. He also described the fire as shooting like a fireball across the row of seats. A number of people had grabbed fire extinguishers and were attempting to put the flames out. But it was his opinion that the fire was getting out of hand. So he decided to leave there and go and phone the fire brigade. So he ran back through the main bar and into the Silver Swan, where he picked up an extension phone, which was at the back of the bar but this wasn't able to make external calls at that moment, so he just couldn't get through. 
he was trying to switch it back to a public line and a couple of other staff members were helping him trying to remember how to fix the phone finally he was able to get through to 999 he was asked which service he required and he said fire brigade and in a matter of seconds the fire brigade responded he said then would you come down to the Stardust Club in Artane as fast as you can? There is a large fire. There is over 800 people in the place. For God's sake, come quick. It is getting out of control. He said that the fire brigade officer asked him for his telephone number. He gave the phone number and the officer said, we are on our way. And this call was recorded and timed at 1.43. Mr Neville's call was received by Fireman Glover, who was on duty in the control room at the time. And in accordance with normal procedures, he wrote the details on a docket included the time at which it had been received and passed that docket to sub-officer Hughes, the senior officer and duty at the control room at the time. Both the docket and the occurrence book were kept in the control room and Neville then went back into the Stardust where at this point the entire ballroom was filling with smoke and the fire, as he described, was completely out of control. Staff were shouting, come on, everybody out. He told them he's told the fire brigade and then he rushed outside to safety. This has happened so quickly. I think that's what's so crazy. At like one twenty-five, someone's like, oh, it's getting a bit warm. By one forty-three, he's calling the, poli- uh, the fire brigade saying, it's out of control. But I, I think, I do agree. But also, I mean, what's that, 18 minutes? That the fire's had 18 minutes to really take hold and, and it will do. It's just going to spread so dramatically. So already by one forty-three, it's... Uh, there's no way out of this essentially the fire brigade even if they turned up right away are not going to be able to get the fire under control and and avoid anybody getting injured so i can just imagine the level of panic because it's obviously it's late at night it's quarter to two in the morning people are drunk it's still relatively busy even though it's a large building with a capacity of nearly double what it had in inside like you said earlier, it still would have felt really busy and to to kind of see the flames and the smoke and feel the heat and to feel so trapped and to not really be able to see windows because you don't really see that in a nightclub. I think that you would really, if you were a patron of that club right now, you would really be starting to worry for, for your life. I think you would feel that sense of impending doom that you might not have felt 10 minutes previously. Definitely. Patrick Murphy gave a statement later about his attempts to put out the fire, saying he took a fire extinguisher from the wall by the bar, carried it under his arm and ducked under the blind. So people like him and and so many people who tried to fight the fire, whilst, like you said, they'd have been having this impending kind of feeling of crisis is going to get bad, actually went back towards that. I just always find that incredible when people are, are able to do that. But I, I think that's panic as well. I think it's, it it's really well, brave, yeah. of course, but it's almost like I'm not able to make a rational decision here. So, yeah, uh, and it's great. It's so brave and they're risking their life to, to save hundreds of other lives. But it is still brought about by a, a feeling of panic and Definitely. a fight for survival. So it's great what, what he did and these other people, but it, it was more through a sense of, of, danger i guess and and the panic that that brings i think so so he said once he was in the seating area the fire wasn't particularly high and he couldn't see any smoke but he could feel intense heat from the ceiling he aimed the water jets at the flames but it did nothing he kept trying to put the flames out but his hair began to singe his face and the backs of his hands were beginning to burn up 
and he began to fear that the ceiling would fall down. Looking around, he saw numerous other staff members that he knew really well. So Frank Doyle, another doorman, Austin Bell, and many others. And he said, suddenly the ceiling started to drip and melt. Particles, some of which were on flames, fell from the ceiling, landing on the tables and the seats. Particles which were not flaming seemed to be of like a jelly-ish substance. Some fell on the cuffs of his shirt and they left a stain. And the flaming particles continued to flame after they landed on the seats and tables. But they didn't seem to actually set fire to either of these. In a matter of seconds, a large portion of the ceiling in the corner area fell. He continued to move backwards down the aisle until he was level with the blind. As he came level with the blind, a much larger section of the ceiling collapsed and there was a huge rush of black smoke out of the ceiling, followed by a flash of light. And he said then the lights in the stardust went out. Oh, Jesus. Can you imagine that? It Mm -hmm. just suddenly going pitch black. Yeah. I just can't, I can't imagine how that must have felt for them. I know. Leo Doyle said he'd grabbed an extinguisher and said in one of his statements to the Garda that the fire was spreading along the back wall and a number of seats were on fire. The only other person who he could remember with certainty as being in the alcove fighting the fire at the same time was Mr Murphy. He thought he had seen him already attempting to put the flames out when he got there. Whilst he was fighting the fire he became conscious of intense heat coming from the ceiling and causing a burning sensation kind of similar to sunburn on his hands, his forehead and the back of his neck. It was so intense that it drove him back down the aisle. He then heard a crash from the other end of the alcove near the main bar. A big gush of black smoke came through the ceiling and the lights went out, so he ran down to the dance floor in the direction of where Exit 2 was. And whilst all this was happening, other staff were attempting to raise the blinds. A crowd was gathering around the section of the blind nearest the main bar, and this group was ordered to get moving and evacuate. The DJ, Colm O'Brien, had stopped the music and he was saying something which witnesses thought they said was keep calm, something along those lines. So Colm remembers looking at his watch, noticing that the time was approximately 1.40 and then he saw a fire. The second section of the blind nearest the main bar was up and he saw what seemed to him to be a very small fire in the side of the seats. He played another record and less than half a minute later when he looked over he saw that the fire had grown. The flames had got very high and he thought the ceiling itself had gone on fire. The flames also seemed to be spreading in the direction of the main bar and there was smoke coming across the room. So in his words, he described what happened next. At that stage, people were beginning to panic. I started into another record and they were beginning to move off the floor. So I asked them not to panic. Just after that, I stayed on stage for a while and some people sat down. And when they noticed the fire getting bigger, they just started to panic and move out. And some people moved up onto the stage from the floor. He said what prompted him to make the announcement was that people were beginning to panic already. So kind of he can recall using the words, don't panic, everything is under control, move quietly to the exits. He remained on stage for a further 15 seconds and saw that the smoke was spreading down very far. And he said that the dance floor had been full at the beginning of the last sequence of records, but some people did begin to move off the floor at the time when he saw the fire. After he finished his announcement, people then, in large numbers, moved off the dance floor, most of them in the direction of Exit 2, which is that main foyer bit. When he made the announcement at first, some patrons went on dancing or sat down at the tables, and he said at that stage he made the announcement because people were panicking slightly, and he was really worried that that panic was going to turn into something worse. Which in itself could could have proved fatal, so we've seen it before, haven't we, when people are 
trying to evacuate an area or a building en masse, that in itself will cause a number of fatalities as people crush and trample over each other in that fight for survival. So it is really, really important to encourage people to stay calm. I totally understand where he was coming from. Definitely. So different column now, Column O'Toole, told people sitting at tables to move to the exit, so some of them did what he asked. He then saw Alfred Riley, who was a patron, making his way up the steps nearest the main bar with a fire extinguisher. Now this is really, really kind of key to what you were saying before, because Colm had seen Alfred earlier that night, and he knew he was really worse for wear due to how much he'd been drinking. But Alfred was just determined to do something. So in his drunken state and seeing this something happening, he just decided to go and try and do something. But when Colm saw him, he was dragging the fire extinguisher along the ground. So Colm grabbed Alfred around the chest and brought him back down, took the extinguisher to use himself and basically was like, Alfred, just get out. So again, as with other witnesses, he said it had no effect on the fire. Once he'd been trying to use the extinguisher for a while, he just left the alcove, went to the doorway of the main bar. He did try a few more times as he was leaving to extinguish flames, but he just couldn't and he then left the building too. And David Wren, a barman at the Lantern Room, had finished work at about one twenty. He was stood outside the bar, he'd had a drink, but later someone told him, Dave, there's a fire in the Stardust, get everybody out. He directed a fire extinguisher on the flames that he came across for about 30 or 40 seconds, and a white liquid did come out but had no effect on the fire. Heavy black smoke was reaching him at this stage and affecting his breathing. David dropped the extinguisher, ran back through the bar of the lantern room where he held his head over one of the wash basins. He had a fit of retching and he believes he was retching because he'd breathed in so much of the fumes. As he was being sick over the sink, he noticed that lights were flickering in the main bar and so he rushed to the band leader, Mick Morrissey, and said, it is really serious, get everybody out. The exit beside the stage in the lantern room was open at this point and some people were filing out. He said that people who were sitting at the tables in the lantern room were now beginning to realise there was an emergency and were standing up and gathering into small groups. So David helped to clear people from the lantern room. Remembered he'd left his coat in the main bar, so he went back, grabbed it, and then he hurried outside. So I've given you some of the first-hand experiences of a number of people here, but I really wanted to just kind of pause and discuss just how quick this had actually all happened. So the fire was very small when it was first spotted in the ballroom, but within two minutes of the fire first being reported, the ferocious burst of heat and thick black smoke began to come from the ceiling, and it was at this point that the material on the ceiling began to melt and drip down, and then this dripped into the really highly flammable materials, including the seats and the carpet tiles on the wall. There was a fire flashover that enveloped the club, and that was when the lights failed. I think you've painted such a vivid picture through those accounts of of what happened and how it would have felt to have been there because I can really picture it in my head as if I were there and the intense heat, for example, so the ceiling literally melting and the intense heat that you would have felt if you were there because it's hot already in a club and you're dancing and you're drunk and you feel hot anyway. So to to have it so hot that the ceiling is starting to melt... I, I can only really imagine how horrific it would have been for them. And like that one guy described it almost as like instant sunburn. Yeah. The temperature in, in, in that area of the building must have been, uh, to burn skin from a distance, it must have been over 100 degrees by that. I don't know, but I just, yeah, I just can't imagine that. Yeah, really horrific, isn't it? 
So that's where we'll leave this uh, episode, part one. Join us tomorrow for part two. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.